Welcome to the New Books Network. It's the Yukon Popcast. I'm Stephen Dyson. The University of Connecticut Humanities Institute recently sponsored a panel discussion on the topic, Can You Fall in Love with ChatGPT? And we recorded this discussion as a live podcast. The panel, which brought together a computer scientist, humanities scholars, and social scientists, focused in part on the latest advances in sociable AI, but much more on the impact these technologies are having and are going to have on human relationships. And now we bring you that discussion. Welcome to our consideration of the question, can you fall in love with ChatGPT? I'm Stephen Dyson from the Humanities Institute and the Yukon Podcast. A little over 10 years ago, the American sociologist Sherry Turkle published Alone Together, a book and accompanying viral TED talk about our disconnection from one another in an age of virtual communication. Constant electronic connection was, she argued, a poor substitute for rich, in-person human contact. Turkle noted that the young were being trained to substitute for a lack of deep peer relationships by forming bonds with what she called sociable robots. These robots, such as the then popular Tamagotchi children's toys, were increasingly able to mimic the gestures and activities of living creatures. When a non-human thing responds to our actions, tracks our movements, or gestures to us in affection, it triggers what Turkle called Darwinian buttons, leading us to anthropomorphize to see as human the non-human thing. Adults were less enamored of Tamagotchis, but were increasingly entangled with the rudimentary chatbots of the early 2010s, such as the personal assistant Siri. One of the people Turkle interviewed expressed the profound wish that one day a Siri-like chatbot would be advanced enough to, quote, be my best friend. Turkle predicted that as artificial intelligences became more able to communicate with us, we would develop more feelings towards them. Quote, our machines will will evolve to be lovable and we will evolve to love them. Yet fundamentally, all these machines could ever do was perform or mimic human-like behavior. They were at core what she called deception machines. A decade later, OpenAI released its ChatGPT3 interface for general users. Users found that ChatGPT, a text interface large language model that uses a predictive algorithm to guess the correct next word in a sequence, could conduct extensive and nuanced conversations about whatever topic the user desired. Within a few months, the next iteration, GPT-4, proved able to outscore most humans on benchmark tests for elite professions, such as the bar exam and the graduate school entrance, the graduate school examination entrance exam. ChatGPT could produce writing, accurately mimicking not only particular styles, but even particular humans. It gave every impression of holding two-way conversations, although at core, it was simply a predictive algorithm, guessing the correct next word without any idea of what any of the words meant. Contemporary debate about AI often focuses on narratives of threat, security, utility, and practicality. The existential risk community assigns probabilities to the development of runaway superintelligence, AI that escapes our control and becomes misaligned with our values, posing either a deliberate or an inadvertent threat to our survival. Neoliberal thinkers calculate the potential boost to productivity coming from AI that can replace human labor, 
as a range of tasks that can be more profitably performed by humans rather than machines grows ever more narrow. Already, ChatGPT threatens to upend many occupations that rely on the synthesis of information and its rendering into coherent written form. Lawyers, journalists, data analysts, professors. There was no cackle of alarm. <laughs> Yet a decade ago, Sherry Turkle had stressed the emotional and not just the utilitarian implications of our new class of intelligent machines. When faced with a communicative machine, we attribute to it all sorts of traits, feelings, and thoughts that it simply does not have. My two-year-old has arrived, uh, by the way. <laughs> Hello, Alfred. <laughs> uh, moreover, these machines change us and change the ways we relate to one another. Human relationships are difficult because humans are unpredictable. They require huge investments of time, care, and attention. Most human relationships end in failure, a parting of the ways, often amidst bitter recriminations and hurt. Chatbots, on the other hand, don't need care and attention. They don't change or grow apart from you. They don't let you down. As we expect more of technology, Turkle wrote, we expect less of each other. A year after Sherry Turkle published Alone Together, the director Spike Jones released the movie Her. The story follows sad-sack Theodore Twombly, a middle-aged man reeling from his recent divorce. Theodore acquires a new AI personal assistant, voiced by Scarlett Johansson. During setup, the AI asks him two questions. One, does he want his new assistant to have a male or female voice? And two, what was his relationship with his mother? The AI in her is more advanced than ChatGPT, but it has many similarities. It doesn't have a physical form, and it communicates fluently in ways that appear plausibly human. When the New York Times columnist Ezra Klein was asked recently to pick one piece of culture that best captures the contemporary United States, he picked her. He wrote, quote, her saw something that I think most of AI commentary is missing. These systems are going to upend our relationships long before they remake our economies. Klein suggests that this movie and developments in sociable AI are asking us to confront a set of pressing questions. As AI becomes more able to perform human-like conversation and tasks, will we, as Sherry Turkle suspected, develop ever deeper relationships with our machines? What will this mean for our relationships with other humans? In an America beset by a loneliness epidemic, is the future of companionship and of care to be found in the artificial? To state the issue at its starkest, can you fall in love with ChatGPT? Joining me on stage to discuss this are Dan Rockmore, Professor of Mathematics and Computer Science at Dartmouth College and the Director of the Newcomb Institute for Computational Science, his writings on AI and the humanities have appeared in The New Yorker, The LA Review of Books, and Slate. Anna Mae Dwayne, Professor of English and Director of the Yukon Humanities Institute. She teaches and writes in the fields of American Studies, African American Literature, and the Medical Humanities. Her work has been supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Fulbright Foundation, and the Japan-US Friendship Commission. And Jeffrey Ardudis, Professor of Political Science and Affiliate Faculty of American Studies at the University of Connecticut. He specializes in the area of American law, politics and culture, and focuses in particular on the many facets of the American politics of rights. 
Most importantly, Jeff is the co-founder and the co-host of the Yukon Popcast. Yep. <laughs> Please welcome the, the paddle. Okay, to get us going here, I thought I would ask um, you all to comment on this question, but I think I'll start with Professor Rothmore first. Can you fall in love with ChatGPT? It's a cute title for a panel, but, but what does this question mean to you? Uh, give us your thoughts or your reactions or even your answer to the question. Um, well, the mathematician always wants to start with a definition. Uh, so there's a question of how you define love, for sure. Uh, as, I, as I said to Anna May, I mean, I, I mean for cent, whatever, for millennia, we've fallen in love with objects. You know, no problem. I mean, many people keep their teddy bears uh, until they're well into adulthood. And if you lost that teddy bear, you would be very, very, very sad. Um, and uh, and if, whatever, there's, I mean, myths of Galatea, for example. I mean, there's a, there's a long tradition of people falling in love with objects and even words. Uh, Cyrano de Bergerac, uh, I mean, and like a bazillion variations on that story. Um, and, but... Uh, Again, as, as I said to Anna May, for the person who wants their relationship to stop at a sort of pleasurable and even interesting exchange of words, that's a, that's a love for a particular kind of person. I don't know how many people in this room would be happy to say that I'm in love with, let's say, a person with whom I could never actually touch them or go for a walk with them or share a cup of coffee with them. So... You know, I mean, there are people for whom, honestly, like that's a boundary condition for love. <laughs> like they don't want anything more than that. Um, I, you know, I mean, that's not me. I don't know how many of you, I mean, probably some of you, there's a spectrum of love expectations, if you like. But the idea that, you know, love is simply a passing of an emotional touring test, um, I think is a, uh, whatever, it's a kind of compromised form of love um and uh you know so coming back to where i started uh, i whatever love on a spectrum this doesn't <laughs> this doesn't achieve the majority i think of people when they would sort of place a pointer on that spectrum so i mean i know it's a kind of provocative question but there's a sense in which i think it's a little misguided and whatever we'll have more time to talk about it but that's my view Professor Duen? Um, yeah, English professors also like definitions, I think. Um, <laughs> and love is so hard to define. Um, I was just reading, this, you know, scientists are trying to track it in the brain, but they're not sure exactly what it's, they're looking for. But um, to go to, to Dan's excellent, people do love objects. And I do think to parse it even further, can you fall in love with a chatbot? I think you can because falling in love is that part of love in which you're just infatuated and it's largely about how the other person makes you feel right they're bringing you flowers they're telling you you're beautiful or handsome and right and everyone knows that part of love doesn't last that long <laughs> right because then people push back and people have imperfections and there's mutuality uh, as um, Stephen alluded to in the beginning, like human relationships are hard. So I think, like, but 
one thing that chat GBT and these other AI as in her um, raises the specter of is that you could stay in that state of just having yourself reinforced, right? The best, everything you want to hear about yourself constantly reinforced, never contradicted. Um, and tell yourself that not only that you are in love, that you were loved in return, that what they are, what the, they, see I'm already personifying AI, um, but what's being said to you reflects something true about yourself. And so it, to Sherry uh, Turkle's point, I think it, it threatens to make us expect less of each other, but also less of ourselves about that sort of just really solipsistic view of I only want the world reflected to me in a way that I find palatable. Jeff? Um, so can you fall in love with chat GPT is, I think, cute. And it is <laughs> provocative. It's likely misleading as well. Um, you know, these, these are all my hallmarks. Yeah. Right? This is my standard <laughs> operating procedure. Cute, provocative, and misleading. I just wanted to get all my compliments out of the way. Those were compliments. Yeah. Uh, cute. You know. uh, so I, I I agree broadly with both Professor Rockmore and Professor Duane. Um, it seems to me that it, what matters here is exactly what you make of the concept of love. To the extent that love is, as Anime says, at least what we think of as mature love, is a kind of mutuality. To that extent, it doesn't seem to me that ChatGPT or any other kind of predictive uh, apparatus would fulfill those obligations because as Professor Duane says, this is simply an occasion in which you've got an object or a machine or something that mimics human consciousness, essentially reciting back to you in very predictable, cloistered, boundary-enforcing ways. Whereas a mature form of love is is unpredictable. It can be chaotic. It is something in which one has the consciousness of um, untetheredness um, about what may or may not occur with with that person. So I think you can fall in love with ChatGPT, but I agree that the type of love that it would be strikes me as not especially fulfilling or mature in the sense that we have heretofore thought of as mature adult relationships. Okay, so one thing that appealed to me about the the question, can you fall in love with ChatGPT, and, and especially when I saw the Ezra Klein article uh, linking it to the to the movie Her, a very sort of pressing movie, was it? It seemed to allow a role for the the humanities and a role for um, cultural and popular cultural narratives. Um, but but what really is this role, and how important are narratives in? in what is essentially a, is it not a technical question? I mean, maybe I need to come to you again first, Dan. I mean, are you, do, do you buy into this notion that, that cultural narratives or popular cultural narratives are a significant one we're talking about, or are we not just talking about a series of technical issues and we should leave it to, to others? Um, so try the question for in a different, I'm, I'm not sure I'm following the question. So what's the, so, so let me just ask you very yeah. starkly, do, yeah. do narratives matter when we're dealing with uh, matters of um, the development and the deployment of uh, new technologies? So narratives around the technologies, I mean, is, is that what you're like, I mean, are you saying like, like a narrative of what ChatGPT is capable of, or is it, uh, I'm, I mean, uh, 
sorry, I'm, I'm still not, I'm just not familiar with the, with the, with the terminology. I mean, yeah. So, so the stories that societies tell themselves about um, technologies, if we think of some past okay. examples, like narratives that grew up around, for example, um, nuclear power or nuclear weapons uh, or I climate see. change, which could be okay. sort of coded as scientific questions. But I wonder if there's a, a kind of cultural element to, to what's going on with them. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, the, the narrative that, that surrounds artificial intelligence these days is one of whatever societal <laughs> destruction, right? I mean, that's a, you know, that artificial intelligence is taking away the jobs that it's uh, whatever it's uh, as it, as the greatest disruptive technology that we know currently. Um, and, uh, you know, so that and honestly, even the way it was it's been posed for years in this kind of Turing test style. And I don't know if folks in the audience know a Turing test, but the one of the hallmarks, if you like, of trying to decide if a machine is intelligence is, is intelligent was an old uh, test that Alan Turing put together, a famous computer scientist, uh, which was a take on something called the imitation game at his time. And the imitation game was you had a screen um, as a party game and you had a screen and behind the screen was either a man or a woman. Uh, and the person on the other side was supposed to figure out by asking the, the having roughly having a conversation with this hidden person. And then after some number of iterations, deciding whether or not this was a man or a woman on the other side. And so that evolved into this test for intelligence in which on the other side of the screen is a machine or a person. Um, and then that could be expanded to any of a number of contexts, if you like chess intelligence or checkers intelligence, or uh, I mean, any kind of test where you're pitting the person against the machine. Um, but it's always about replicating human behavior. It's not, it's not really a competition <laughs> in some way. And, uh, but that framing has made a framing of a competition of humans with machines that's carried on throughout literature and movies and everywhere. And uh, so it hasn't actually built a framing of collaboration generally, even though you could have. Uh, so I guess, I mean, some of the specter of the end of the world because of technology, I think is built on that historical narrative. And then but I mean, and even I, I will say in the 60s or 70s at IBM, you weren't allowed to use in any published IBM documents, in any marketing documents, you could not use the phrase artificial intelligence. That was a company policy because they were in the business of making computers and they wanted people to buy computers and not be afraid to buy computers because they would put them out of their jobs. And um, so it it's a funny flip now that everything we buy it doesn't matter what you're using now it, it's actually said that, that it has artificial intelligence underneath that that's the great thing in fact so the narrative i guess has been hijacked recently even though it is about people being displaced um yeah so yeah and the, the existential threat thing you talked about i just read before i came over here an article about the um uh, uh chief scientific officer i think it was of um meta ai who was saying the current level of artificial intelligence is that it's less smart than a cat, much less smart than a cat. And so maybe we should wait until we cross that boundary before we worry about them, them trying to kill us. Yeah, but it's, uh, sorry, I, but I, 
it's, it's always a question of what the measurement is. You know, is it less smart than a cat? Yes, because if you throw a computer up in the air, it will, by gravity, <laughs> fall down and smash. Whereas the cat will right itself and fall on its feet. So if that's your test of cat intel of intelligence, the cat wins every time. If you ask the cat to compute an integral, the cat fails every time and the machine wins. So I, I don't actually know what that, like, honestly, that sentence is nonsense. So, um, but so again, but, this is another one of my specialities. <laughs> no, 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 I mean, I'm not accusing you. I'm just saying that there's a lot of, if you get a marketing officer to say something, you know, who knows what's going to come out. So that's a, that's an entirely different kind of intelligence. <laughs> if, if I could just jump on that, because we haven't talked about the movie Her so much yet, but she doesn't have a body. You referred to like getting coffee. I think one of the displacements here is we are over-investing in only one kind of intelligence, which is like that's the constant context in which sort of the cat remark makes sense, right? Because the only intelligence that we care about, or that we care about, or that's going to put us out of our job, or that we should we need to worry about, is sort of this disembodied intellect. Uh, and that displaces animal intelligence, other kinds of bodily intelligence, right? And, and we're back to sort of, do you need a body to love? I mean, that comes up in her. But I, I do think I worry about that as well, um, the ways in which we're, we're defining intelligence so narrowly mm -hmm. and not considering, right, the cat. The cat has a lots of <laughs> factors that a chatbot will never have. And But, you know, we have a long history of, of course, like, the body is less important than the mind. And mm. if we create minds that are better than us, uh, right, we're back to the threat. Then we need to become machines ourselves. Mm. Do, do you have something that <laughs> I, I look expectantly at? <laughs> You're usually big on narratives. What do you, what do you see when you look I, at, at this, yeah, I this mean, landscape? So it, it strikes me that there is a sort of a poverty of imagination in our cultural narratives around AI. And what I mean by that is that and Dan was sort of alluding a little bit to this, is that the vast majority of these stories that occupy our imaginations and then filter their way, usually in indirect fashion, into our sort of real-life thinking about issues, most of these narratives revolve around uh, polarities of dom domination and submission. Mm. And the, the, the fear is that, you know, humans will create something like, the Prometheus sort of allegory, which is brought up frequently in these kinds of narratives, humans will create something that then comes to dominate humanity. Um, and so the relationships of domination and submission will be uh, flipped. And what, what that relationship does is it, it really displaces or just doesn't even take into account the possibility of kind of mutuality as you were suggesting, anime. And um, it seems to me that as long as you're, we're sort of stuck in this, um, in this imagination where AI is either our doom or our savior, but nothing in between, that we end up sort of missing a lot of the point of what's possible and, what, and frankly, what's likely to come out of human embrace um, and development of AI. I know one thing that I think was was alluded to there, this question of kind of domination and submission and so forth, is a a narrative or a metaphor that I know you're a, a, a an expert in, mm -hmm. Professor Duane, which is the notion of oh. um, the the application and quite 
maybe even more commonly, the misapplication of uh, metaphors of slavery. And this is something that pops up, I think, quite commonly, certainly in popular cultural depictions of, of AI, uh, right down to Carol Capek's original play about a robot revolt and quote mm. slaves overthrowing their, their masters. I wonder if you'd, you'd share your thoughts with us on, on that metaphor. Yeah, I, I was, we were just chatting about it. It's very hard if you start looking at narratives and films about AI to find one without the word slave in it, mm -hmm. right? And it, that's one way I think both historical narratives uh, and fictional narratives recapitulate each other. Uh, when you said we, we didn't imagine how we might collaborate with um, AI, it's because we don't know how to collaborate with each other, right? We come from this long history in which one person has to be um, dominant and the other one, you know, is, uh, is uh, submissive. And thinking about it in terms of, I have two thoughts, right? One is um, in terms of love and in terms of emotion, uh, there is this, right, we all know that there was, you know, we think of uh, slavery as uh, a condition of labor and violence and, and you know, absolute um, atrocity, which, of course, it was. But there was a lot of emotional labor that uh, gets talked about perhaps less. Um, there were lots of people who were enslavers were very convinced that the people they enslaved loved them. Mm. Because and that was reflected to them. Going back to my initial comments, because the system made it so that you had to monitor the emotions and the well-being of the person who had power over you and reflect to them what they wanted. Um, and uh, there was a quote that Walter Johnson, who's a historian of uh, slavery, talks about. Um, he says uh, that enslavers dreamed of beating and healing and sleeping with slaves, uh, right, which perhaps right in her we have that coming up. Uh, sometimes even dreamed that their slaves would love them. And in doing so, they fantasized about who they could be by thinking about whom they could buy. And, of course, one thing that hasn't necessarily come up so explicitly is beyond sort of how we draw on this sort of historical record of histro uh, atrocity to imagine how we might interact with these uh, kinds of intelligence um, that these are purchased, right? That these are owned by corporations or owned by us. And so we are creating these structures again in which we cannot, uh, there cannot be reciprocity, there cannot be agency. And what I'm concerned about is certainly if there ever is consciousness, which I, that's probably not a, <laughs> a question you, you want to talk about, how I'm not as worried about what they would do to us as what we would do to them because we have um, a, a long history of sort of dismissing uh, empathy for any consciousness that is um, inconvenient for us and finding all ways of uh, identifying reciprocity where there is none or identifying um, a desire to be cheerful and cheerfully labor where there is none. Okay, so I think we're going to leave it there for uh, part one and we will be right back. And we are back with our panel discussion on can you fall in love with ChatGPT. Uh, Professor Rockmar, I know there was a point on uh, Sherry Turkle and, and the sort of feedback loop yeah. uh, that you wanted to, to begin with. Yeah, I, I mean, the interesting thing about focusing on ChatGPT uh, is that it's about words. Um, it hasn't been, it's not materialized in any uh, way. And, you know, the question of how 
a consistent interaction with a dematerialized thing um, only through words, uh, how that changes our own expectations about the world, um, you know, and hence how those expectations then change the world that we're in and so on and so forth. You know, I think is a, I think that's probably the most dangerous thing about uh, about this technology that it is seductive in the way um, uh, that that anime described, and that you know that that you do get this reinforcement, and so then the question of whether or not that means that in our own discourse we actually expect agreement and reinforcement at every point and it's just a question which maybe Jeff has uh, thoughts on because it, it it you could imagine at least a mathematical model that that drives you to polarization in the way in which we experience because if if your expectation is that the and most of your word experiences conversations are all ones of you know yes roughly speaking yes i agree with you then anytime you come to conflict well why wouldn't you just run mm -hmm. to the other side mm -hmm. um and uh, so i many of you may know uh, that i mean like campuses all around america now in particular are very very focused on trying to figure out how to have uh what Anyway, at Dartmouth, we call, you know, difficult conversations, right? So conversations which are highly charged, where there are obvious uh, polarizations attached to them, which seem impossible to have, except, you know, with people screaming at each other at the end. And so this is just a long way of saying, like, could we imagine that part of that conversational extremism has been driven by the reinforcement and that's an actual thing about algorithms there are actually called reinforcement learning algorithms um, and what what do they do they they double down on what it got right however you want, want to define what it got right uh, beforehand so uh, so is the is the conversational extremism and then god forbid the physical extremism um, that we see i don't know is there a story that traces it back to mm. this kind of you know anodyne interaction how are you feeling today i'm feeling fine how are you feeling i'm you know blah 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 mm -hmm. so that's that's a thought <laughs> do, do you have no, like, yeah, I, yeah i mean there's some there's something interesting i think for sure i hadn't really thought about this before but there's certainly something interesting about the coincidence of the rise in at least contemporary political polarization um and the rise of a, a highly mediated technologically mediated culture. Um, and I guess I would point to the rise of social media in particular and the ways in which um, he, so much of social media is posting some series of thoughts um, that then sort of get interacted with or sort of don't get interacted with. And you're never really sure what people are making of this, but it, as the algorithm likes, if the algorithm likes it, if you, which, you know, if it may, and then it will double down and it will reinforce things. There is a kind of an echo chamber coincidence, maybe in those two practices, practices of doing politics, explicit politics, and the practices of doing social media. Um, neither one of those, though, 
explores a third potential option of technology, which that it could be a kind of connective force, right? Which we have also seen the rise of, especially over the last several years. And all of you who have sat in or taught Zoom classes or WebEx classes will know exactly what I'm talking about. There is a way in which part of this, the story that gets left out in these in our obsession with dominance and submission narratives and that maybe gets left out in our kind of preening um, narcissism is the way in which technology sometimes fit the same technology sometimes facilitates human interconnection and sometimes that human interconnection is meaningful sometimes it's not um, and I, I wonder if that's also part of the story Dan that it's not simply a, a negative story of the rise of polarization coincident with the rise of advanced communicative technology, but it, maybe there's a, a, a subterranean theme there about connection as well. I, I, I mean, all right, so it's definitely not a neither nor <laughs> kind of thing or an either or um, to be more positive about it. Uh, but I mean, so yes, I mean, there was a pandemic and if it weren't for Zoom, we wouldn't have had any, many people wouldn't have had any education, wouldn't have any contact with anyone. I mean, there are all kinds of things that wouldn't have happened except for the fact that we can do stuff remotely. Um, now that we do have, uh, generally I'm looking out in the audience and I don't see a mask, which is, I'm not wearing a mask, totally fine. <coughs> awesome. And you're all here. Uh, so you've all decided to come together to, cause there's something better about being here with your friends or people you don't know, or just something better about it. Uh, and, but for a lot of people, they can't they don't want to get the activation energy up to go to class or to go to a lecture or to go to something in person. Um, so I look technology, there are all kinds of different contexts in which technology is the best solution. Absolutely. And, but the question of whether or not the best context for argumentation and discussion is online in a kind of Hollywood Square sort of thing, or even if you virtualize it in some kind of weird VR, XR room, um, like whether that's better for having conversations than it is to have a cup of coffee with someone or go to the reception after the meal and ask a question face to face. Does that live with you in a different way? Um, I, there are probably people here who study that and somebody is studying that. I know, I mean, there's a question, somebody's studying it. Um, that's, that is the academy. Uh, but I, so I just come back to it. It's not an either or thing. There are places where technology made stuff happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise. When that replaces instances where it could have happened otherwise, because it's the easy solution is the place where you have to drill down and decide whether or not that is the best way to be doing it. So. Yeah, it's super interesting, and I, um, I'll take Sherry Turkle's uh, word for it, but she reported, you know, back to this question of, of narratives and how they can differ across culture, that in Japanese culture, certainly when she was writing, um, one variation of this technology, which was the, 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 social, the sociable robot, was seen as a solution for ills that were brought upon by another variation of this technology, which was kind of mediated mm. interaction over the internet. And I think in particular, the, the, the kind of... Narrative that makes it made this concrete for me was um, if you think of the second Blade Runner, the Blade Runner mm. 2049, in which there's this clear hierarchy of um, real people, artificial people, 
holograms, you know, and, and even the holograms and the artificial people are extremely sort of um, jealous of the, the embodiment. Uh, you know, you don't like real girls, that, that, that famous sort of line. Um, so a very interesting sort of, uh, sort of thing, set of things to think about. Um, other comments from the, from the panelists, uh, or should we turn it over to the q and I'm, I'm but your humble servant, but, but not a robot, <laughs> you don't think. Turn over to Q&A. Um, yeah. oh, do you have, a, do you have yeah. another comment? No. Nope. Oh, okay. So, perfect. Let's, let's turn over to, uh, to Q&A. Anything that's been said, um, anything, I know we talk about popular culture narratives as well, anything, I'd make you watch them. So, uh, Owen, what, what do you have for us? Yeah, so um, the novum of artificial intelligence is obviously very prevalent in science fiction films, and it seems to me that the typical narrative in a majority of films that contain artificial intelligence is kind of a, a Frankenstein-like um, situation where the creator becomes dominated by their creation. Uh, do you think that this narrative takes away from the potential, do you think this narrative is, is unrealistic and takes away from a more realistic potential that um, artificial intelligence could be used by the rich or wealthy to um, market to or to control uh, the less wealthy in our society? Well, I would argue they've already done that. You have your phone there. It's, I mean, honestly, in so many ways, you've already been taken over by, I mean, I'm not, I'm not picking on you. I'm, you is the whatever, general, general world. Um, there's this famous uh, book by Jaron Lanier uh, called You Are Not a Gadget. Um, but, you know, honestly, phones, sorry, uh, have made many of us into gadgets already. So whether it... it it's kind of the subtle, if you like, conquering of humanity that's happened. And I mean, you, many of you probably know the story, like in Silicon Valley, right? All those tech giants who were making literally billions of dollars, you know, they don't let their, their, their kids go to Montessori and don't get on phones until they're 14, as far <laughs> as they know, right? Like they keep all the technology away from them. All the technologists keep the technology from their children. So that's pretty telling. You know, I mean, I, I, I like to joke that if, that if, the NIH, if the NIH had been forced or had told Silicon Valley that they'd have to first do uh, a designed experiment, a clinical trial on technology with a thousand teenagers around America, they, they would have banned the technology after two weeks. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, so it's not, so, it's not so much the, whatever, it's not really Frankenstein. It's more like robot minions. Honestly, they're very cute. Um, and they're fun to play with and they're tiny and they, and it follows you around. So it's, it, it's a very subtle sort of control that's already happening, unfortunately. And, and so how do you get around that control? Like, how would you get around the Frankenstein thing? Like you would have put a switch on the monster, right? It's like, all right, I've had enough of this. You're off. Um, and, uh, but most of us can't modulate that well. And the technology is built for that. You also know that as many of you, like this technology was designed by gamers, right? And so the idea was to make you as connected to this thing, like to actually feed your um, habituation. So... You know, the only, I mean, I don't mean to sound like a revolutionary. I'm actually not. I'm very, I'm not a revolutionary. But, you know, like I tell my kids sometimes, like, just turn the damn thing off. But it's hard. But I get it. It's hard to do. But it's, it's kind of on us because 
the business practice wants you on it. So sorry, that was a long response. Yeah. I mean, I would just add on like one of the things that Silicon Valley um, executives are also super excited about is sort of human enhancement and wearables and right, basically the, the next step is for us to become cyborgs so that we, we won't be outpaced by the machine and there definitely will be no way to, sh to turn it off, right? If you've got a, you know, Elon Musk and the brain chip, you know, uh, guess we'll be so much more enhanced. We'll, we'll, we'll be able to compete with these machines. We'll never be able to shut it off and we won't be owning, um, you know, that technology in the first place that's in our body. So again, I, I worry about sort of the body machine. Yeah interface in ways that, uh, and of course, only some people will be able to afford that level of enhancement, if you want to call it that. Yeah, yeah there's kind of a, a, is it the boiled, is it the frog that gets boiled? Yeah, it's a frog. So there's, there's a kind of a boiled frog <laughs> uh, uh, notion to um, what's actually going on, or, or what the, you know, the pessimistic view is of what, what's actually going on, kind of the, the hacking of attention and the reprogramming of our brains. And the, there's this great book by Shoshana Zuboff called Surveillance Capitalism where she talks about the, the way the economy is based upon monetizing your attention and the, and the algorithm and all the rest of it. But it's much harder to dramatize that than it is like Arnie comes naked from the past, from the future, sorry, it blows everyone away. That's, you know, so, and the, we do run it, we are in danger of becoming kind of boiled frogs, yeah. I think. Right. Um, great question, Owen, thank you. Mm -hmm. Other questions? Yes. Go ahead. Yeah, so uh, despite the recent pessimism, we're all generally optimistic of the idea that an intellectually mature individual could not in any way sort of fall in love with an AI. My question to you then that I would pose is, do you think the emergence, I know you mentioned advanced virtual reality technology recently, do you think that this advanced virtual reality technology and potential sensory components could change this? What if we're really able to, as you say, get a cup of coffee with an AI or take a walk? Do you think that would be possible, or do you think there would always remain some internal knowledge that's not there? You're the scientist. That's, very, that's a really good question. Uh, uh, yeah, Jeff. Go, no, no, please. <laughs> Everybody's looking at me. Um, I, I mean, so. All right. I don't know about the coffee thing, but like, so business schools, for example, are running kind of VR trials, you know, for, um, get, we, everybody gets an avatar. We walk around the room. We have our usual meetings. Like we do all kinds of, even like for ethics training, as weird as that is, um, various kinds of training things that we'll do it all with avatars. Um, I, and remember we like, like we still live in a world, okay, where this feels futuristic, right? So it's a little bit, I think for us, where that's totally not normalized, um, that we'll always be aware that there's some difference happening there, you know, and whether or not if that kind of technology you know, accelerates and in two generations, that's seamless and easy to do. And in fact, tr and like the developers will be thinking about exactly the question that you're thinking about. Like, how do I make this person completely, uh, how do I make the physicality of it just something that they ignore, that they don't even think about? People are gonna be 
doing testing to figure out how to get at that. So, um, you know, for us, I mean, for me, I'll, I'll just speak for me. Like, I mean, I, like in those environments, I'm always very aware that, I, that I'm not in those environments. Uh, and I'd get kind of fed up to pretend I was drinking a cup of coffee with someone that I wasn't drinking a cup of coffee with. Um, in 50 years, will my kids' kids think that way? I, I, I honestly don't know. Um, and, uh, uh, and, you know, the question of, you know, what do we lose by that? Um, that's also kind of something that's hard to know. If you don't have it, then you just don't have it. Um, I mean, you, again, you, like you can measure a million things. Like if I'm standing next to you, does that, does my, do my pheromones spike in some particular way? You know, do my cortisol levels change? Like all that stuff. And then you could try to replicate that. And so then you'd be in a completely simulated, you know, as physically as possible. Would there be anything left? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it's a question of our limits of measurement almost. So, I mean, I wonder, right, what would be the end of that? Because we already have people with bodies that <laughs> can talk to you. Like, I mean, but I feel like yeah. if we could do that, why would it be to replace human connection right? that if we could have some pheromones going back and forth you really like on a physical level couldn't tell wasn't a wasn't a person um but that person is programmed to reflect your every desire right or to tell you how brilliant you are every day then like that the only reason that would be useful would be so that you wouldn't have to deal with people um, and could could you fall in love with that person? I think probably. Um, I love what you said because it goes back to sort of a central thesis of us as humans moving toward a society encouraged by social media and encouraged by you know, this, these online forms of communication of complete and total affirmation. And as you all mentioned, the idea of something that totally affirms you, where there's no there's no conflict, you don't have to struggle, you don't have to compromise. You know, I, I recall that Thomas Aquinas, when he was talking about love, his idea was that it nurtured the good in the other person. You know, mm. the good in the other person. I don't think people, yeah. maybe people don't want that anymore. They think, they, uh. I don't think people want to struggle in order to, you know, have someone else be better than they are. They just want people to accept them as they are, because they're already perfect. And I think, yeah. you mentioned with algorithms, I mean, that's startling. Because mm. you know that something's happening now that's getting you affirmation, it's getting you likes. And I think that it could spiral into something that is potentially very dangerous and very dehumanizing. So I love what you said there. You, you know, John, uh, one of Professor Dyson's favorite movies is Blade Runner. And it just so happens that your question is, you know, kind of a contemporary riff on the premise of that story which is all about the, the way in which technology has advanced so much and AI has advanced so much that it is literally impossible to distinguish between the human and the replicant. And so I wonder if that provoked anything in you. Well, it, it, it was something that, that was in my mind when I, when I came up with the, the, the title for the, mm -hmm. for the panel, you know, and, I, and the question of how you kind of define love and how important it is to, to human relations. And of course, the conceding 
in Blade Runner is that the difference between the, the humans and the replicants is it's not quite love, but it's the feeling of, of empathy. Mm -hmm. and, and what's required is um, extremely sort of in-depth procedures <laughs> to detect um, its absence. To implant memories. Yeah, to, to, implant, to implant memories to, uh, you know, on, on the replicant side, mm -hmm. but also on the human side to determine what, what is artificial, what is non-authentic. Mm -hmm has become, it's, it's no longer trivially easy. It's, it requires incredibly sort of in-depth procedures. The other thing I was thinking when, the, when this question was being answered and, and John, that was quite provocative, was we, we've had the her version of, of this debate, which is the sort of um, intellectual, like, can you have a nice conversation in a rom-com setting and fall in love <laughs> with, with, the, with the chat GPT? There's also um, the kind of ex machina version of this debate, and those are contemporary movies and ex machina i would suggest is it takes takes love in a much different direction and it's much more about physicality and and i've sort of uh, given in the past the hot take that that's a movie that's not really about love it's about pornography right it's these kind of two yeah. dudes voyeuristically um uh, looking over these women who were sort of fetish objects and you know women are kind of body parts that can be taken apart of you know, beautiful faces and interchangeable body parts. And I wonder if that's a, an element of um, human uh, emotion or physicality that we might need to wrestle with, the kind of, the, the kind of ex machina version of this argument that's maybe a little less intellectual and a little less attractive to, to talk about. Mm -hmm. The whole idea is a brand new word others that might have to be So mm -hmm. Yeah, great, great question though, John. Thank you. And um, I'm being told there's another. Tom. <laughs> so I want to push back a little bit on one of the assumptions that what that, that AI will just affirm your every wish, and that's some. We know that that's not allowed, but AI will know that too. Like it will just figure out. Like if I just keep affirming this person, that's going to be ultimately kind of a dare. But that every wrong come includes conflict. And we figured out that point. Like, so AI would just learn, could, would the counter argument be, could AI just learn that I gotta introduce some conflict? I gotta say no sometimes to generate interest. Mm. I've got, and, and it would, mm. according to mm -hmm. machine learning, get much, much better at that. So I don't think the social media angle and the falling in love equals sort of affirming my every need I think that's a little bit of a straw man mm. in, in the way AI works. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was just saying, I uh, actually got to go to a demo of someone who was founding a company that was creating conversational AI and used the AI had Scarlett Johansson's voice, which he will get sued if he doesn't change that, but that's his. But he had this whole conversation. So the demo was very, oh, I'm nervous about the demo. And the AI was like, oh, you're very smart. You're very good at this. You work really hard. You'll be fine. So that affirmation. But then there was a, a moment uh, when he was uh, speaking further and he said she cursed at him. And he said, we had a whole debate about whether she could say F you. Mm -hmm. And we decided a, a friend can say F you. So, um, so there was that. He definitely, like, he, he demoed the... Um, the Scarlett Johansson telling you how great you are, but that he, I, I do wonder, like, will that sell? Do people want that? How does, I mean, I, that's a machine learning question. Have, when they will left it. Agree with that, right? Or a leopard is always going to agree with everything that, and I, 
I think uh, I think I would generate. So yes, um, <laughs> I, I mean I, I I agree. I mean the, the the utility function need not just be agreement. Uh, um, you know, if the ultimately what the people whatever what the businesses want is is engagement. <laughs> So, you know, if, if your engagement is fueled by agreement, then it will continue to agree. If your mm. engagement is fueled by kind of Hepburn Tracy kind of back and forth repartee, then it will learn how to do that. If what you want to do is to scream at the machine and that will keep you there, it will also do that. Um, so, I mean, I mean, so at what, so at absolutely everything you said is right. And then again, this question of what is love, I mean, there's, there are all kinds of different love, um, and there are all kinds of different conversational engagement that make you happy or keep you online. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, as I say it, I mean, I mean, like, so you could imagine an interesting version of this that nudges you in a direction to have a, an uncomfortable conversation um, with a machine and probably somebody's working uh, on that too and maybe that could be a long-term goal um, of AI kinds of um, whatever and chatbot sort of technologies so um, but I mean you are right it's not it's, it's not just about agreeing it's about engaging um, so, uh, I do, I, I have one kind of weird, this isn't quite an answer to Jonathan. Was that your, was that John? Hi, John. Um, I, I, I continue to be struck by this kind of, I mean, I hadn't really thought about it until this, this panel, but you know, this, this idea of, you know, being challenged, uh, by the machine, um, and you know, and I, I, like, I do kind of wonder if, so a million years ago, the, the, the coming of age story was something like there, there was, there was a Horatio Alger story, you know, kind of lift yourself up by your bootstraps kind of, kind of story. And, you know, the more that you engage with algorithms that are trying to keep you engaged, there is like, everybody talks about frictionless engagement. Um, and I, I do wonder if there's some version of having friction that people are just tired of, generally, that society is tired of. And I wonder if that's not, I don't know much about Marxist philosophy, but I, there's a part of me that wonders if part of people's not wanting to struggle anymore is that in an economy where struggle doesn't seem to be rewarded so well or where it's rewarded in a sort of zero one kind of mechanism that, you know, that maybe, maybe this funny reward system that we now all engage in is almost a kind of pacifier um, for actual struggle because struggle in the real world feels like it doesn't pay off for a lot of people. So uh, it's a kind of whatever class-driven interpretation, but you did make me think of that. So thanks. Okay, so we just have time for one more question. I'm told we've got about 90 seconds left. Um, do, yes. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I made the assumptions that those machine learning are going to get, or the AI is going to get better and better, and therefore would uh, 
humans that using them would have to do less and less in order to get what they need. So now the question is going on morality. Uh, we are going, as the AI going to get better, is human being morality going to grade? Because we don't need to think about those mm. complex questions that we are thinking about it all the time. We just wouldn't need to do it. We won't do it. It's a muscle, and suddenly it's going to go down. It's like no one can navigate anymore because of the, the mapping software, right? So, so now the issue is not whether um, we are going to be able to fall in love with the machine, as the question is going to it, that the machine would really want us to be their friends. Because we're right. so uh, <laughs> stupid. Uh, yeah. Say it nicely. Yeah. Well, this is, the, this is sort of the punchline of her, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That the machine, the AIs find each other much more interesting and capable than the humans, and they just go off and leave. Right? Yep, that, that's the issue. <laughs> they, they, I mean, I said in the introduction that chatbots, you know, they don't evolve and they don't change, and of course, they, they, they do in that narrative. Right. They become better than us and they decide we're boring. Um, we would never reach that view of each other or of you, but we, <laughs> we have run out of time, I'm afraid. And so uh, thank you very much. Thank you.